we as the church, we are also necessary to accomplish God's purposes in the world today. We are his instruments to proclaim the message of the gospel to the world. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Brothers and sisters, I have the privilege to continue with you in chapter 24 uh, to see the conclusion of the circumstances surrounding the search for a good wife for Isaac. Uh, And it truly was a marriage made in heaven uh, as we see God's sovereign hand guiding every character in this story, ultimately to fulfill his purposes in the growth of his covenant people and to continue the chosen line of the Messiah. But before we begin, we must not take for granted that this is the very word of God that we hold in our hands. Uh, As I've had the privilege of being involved in the world of missions for many years, uh, I've seen video and I've also heard firsthand accounts from friends who have had the privilege to hand deliver the very first copy of the translated word of God into uh, the language of an unreached people group. Uh, And when you see the joy and excitement that are on their faces, it is very moving emotionally, uh, and it's also convicting. Um, Do we take for granted the word of God? Do we truly believe and live by the words? Your lamp is, your light, or your yeah, you're sorry. <laughs> Your word. I always get that one mixed up. Your word is a lamp to my feet and light to my path. If we believe that God's word is sufficient and has everything mankind needs for life, are we investing in seeing God's word translated into every language? I hope we are. The English pastor H.W. Baker, he wrote uh, a beautiful hymn entitled, Lord, Thy Word Abideth. And this is how it goes. Lord, thy word abideth, and our footsteps guideth, who its truth believeth, light and joy receiveth. When our foes are near us, then thy word doth cheer us. Words of consolation, message of salvation. When the storms are over us and dark clouds before us, then its light directeth and our way protecteth. Who can tell the pleasure or recount the treasure by thy word imparted to the simple hearted, that's us. And then, oh, that we discerning its most holy learning, Lord, may love and fear thee and evermore be near thee. So this morning, may we be discerning, uh, may we grow in our holy learning, and may we grow in both the love and fear of the Lord. And may he draw us closer as we study his word this morning. Thank you again, Ian, for reading Uh, our sermon text. It is a longer one, uh, but you know, it's one of the few times uh, in the word of God where we have a full recap of the previous verses within the text itself. So if you weren't here last week, you are already caught up uh, just by hearing our section read this morning. Uh, But outside of the events of following the story, uh, last week we also looked deeper at important character qualities found in Abraham, found in Abraham's servant, and Rebecca. With Abraham, we saw his continued obedience and trust, a confidence that the Lord would guide the servant to a suitable wife for Isaac. And in Abraham's servant, 
uh, we uh, saw as well great obedience and diligence in how he obeyed his master's orders. And we also look at some points of application. We discussed how it's crucial for parents and particularly fathers to be involved in the dating, engagement, and early marriage of their children. And then with the actions of the servant, we, uh, we saw that we are called to grow in our service to our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we then learned a bit about Rebecca, and we saw her hard work, her courtesy, her humble disposition, her kindness, and her hospitality, and, uh, and how she responded to the servant's requests. And then on our fourth point, we saw how God answered the servant's prayer. And we took special note of God's hesed, his steadfast love. And then we closed everything out and we saw a parallel between Abraham's choosing a bride for his son and God the Father and how he has chosen a bride for his son. That is the church, which we are all a part of if we have trusted in the finished work of Christ. And we all await the day of the great wedding feast. And so last Sunday we had four points and... We have four points this morning as well. And so we're going to see these four things. We're going to see a crafty brother in verses 29 through 33. A divine proposal as the servant recounts uh, what had happened to Laban in verses 34 through 51. We'll look at Rebecca a little bit more and we'll see that she is an eager and a willing bride. And then finally, we will see a loving marriage in verses 62 through 67. So those four things will help give some structure to our time together this morning. Uh, verse 1 of this chapter, chapter 24, it begins with the leader of Isaac's family, with Abraham. But now as we move to the next scene in our account, uh, verse 29 begins with the leader of Rebekah's family, and that's Laban. Now, Laban was Rebecca's brother, and it seems like he was functioning as the head of the family. Uh, her father, Bethuel, was still alive, as he's mentioned in verse 50, uh, but he's not mentioned outside of that verse, and he seems to have a very small role in this decision. Uh, some have suggested that he is incapacitated in some way and not able to participate in a leading role, and other commentators just say that Laban was more skilled in communication and with relationships and so he was given this responsibility. Either way, Laban is definitely the major player in Rebekah's family. And you know what? We catch a glimpse of his character pretty quickly. Uh, what does verse 30 says? It says, as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister. And so the sight of that gold caught his eye. And he was immediately kind and welcoming to Abraham's servant. Verse 31, oh, come in, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? No, 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 come in, come in, come in. We have everything prepared. The house is prepared. The camels, we'll take care of those. We'll take care of you. And so why do you think he called the servant blessed of the Lord? Well, the first idea was just because of all that wealth that the servant brought along with him. But it also could be uh, because of Rebecca's words and what she had come in and told them. Uh, and maybe it's even because of his relationship to Abraham. Uh, and possibly even the servant's own disposition and character. He saw that he was a trustworthy man. 
But due to the fact that the first thing that scripture mentions about him is that he saw the gold jewelry, uh, that gives us insight that, that Laban was motivated by what he could gain out of the situation. And we also have the benefit of insight from later chapters, from chapters 29 through 31, uh, which further shows us the character of Laban as he interacts with Isaac's son, Jacob. And we know that he proves himself to be a deceitful man, a deceitful man of trickery, uh, both in how he deals with Jacob when he wanted to marry Rachel and how he removed animals from his flock that he had promised to Jacob. And we'll come to that story in several weeks. But for now, Laban shows great hospitality to Abraham's servant by taking care of those 10 camels and by inviting him in to stay and preparing food for him. Our diligent servant, though, will not be deterred by the food that is in front of him. He has a proposal to make to Laban, a proposal that is orchestrated by God himself. And so that's why we quickly come to our second point. That's why I entitled it a divine proposal, because this comes from the Lord. And Charles Spurgeon, he makes a note here, and he comments on the diligence of Abraham's servant. And he says, like every true servant of Christ, he puts his master's business before his own ease or comfort, even before the question of necessary food. When a man begins to think more of his eating than of doing the will of God, he ceases to be a true-hearted minister. And that's very true. And so this continues to show us the upstanding character of the servant, but it also brings to mind the opposite, uh, false servants of Christ. Uh, because the New Testament says that they are in fact guided by their desire for food. Philippians 3.19 says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And so we see the false teacher, the false servant of Christ is guided by his fleshly desires. The God is their belly. Not so with Abraham's servant. Abraham's servant is focused to uh, to serve his master Abraham well. And so as the servant recounts his task given to him by Abraham, we see several things. Uh, the first thing in verses 34 and 35 is that he gives a short update on Abraham. And I suspect that Laban and family would have been familiar with how God had blessed Abraham, but he gives them a quick overview of Abraham's wealth and the miraculous birth of Isaac, uh, showing that you know, Isaac is truly Abraham's heir. He's heir to everything that Abraham has. Secondly, in verses 36 through 41, he explains the task that has been given to him. He explains the reason why he came to find a wife among Abram's family, uh, Abraham's family is because Isaac could not marry from among the Canaanites. And we talked about the importance of that last Sunday. And he also highlights the faith of Abraham in verse 40. Verse 40 says, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. And this harkens back to chapter 17, when the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. Be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you 
greatly. And so the servant is explaining to Laban and his family that, yes, this indeed has happened. Abraham has walked faithfully with the Lord, and the Lord has been true to his promise in blessing Abraham. And the servant also explains that this marriage proposal is not being forced upon them. And we'll see that a bit later in Rebecca's response. Uh, but they had the freedom to refuse. And if so, uh, the servant would be freed from his oath as well. When he says, if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. So that's the second thing. He recounts the task. And then the third thing is that he explains to them the providence of God, the answer to his prayer, and his praises back to God for what he had done. That's in verses 42 through 48. And there's one little part here in the servant's explanation that he adds that it wasn't mentioned in the previous verses. And it's in verse 45 where he says, Before I had finished speaking in my heart, Rebecca came out with her water jar on her shoulder. He added that phrase, speaking in my heart. Now, this is total conjecture on my part, but perhaps he was wanting to highlight the fact that this is all from God, not from any manipulation on his part. You know, he wasn't walking around outside loudly praying, oh, Lord, please let a woman come and give me a drink of water. And while you're at it, please let her water my camels as well. No, he wasn't, he wasn't doing that. He was, he was coming to the Lord in the quietness of his heart and of his mind. And how wonderful that in these moments, the Lord knows our thoughts and he hears our prayers. And I would venture to say that this is pretty common uh, for all of us in how we come to the Lord. As we anticipate a difficult situation, we silently pray for strength and guidance. And I think it calls to mind how Jesus himself instructed us to pray in Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. That's exactly what's happening here. The servant is praying to his father in, in secret, and the father has rewarded his prayer in secret. So that's the third thing. He recounts God's providence to Rebecca's family. And the fourth thing is that he graciously asks for their decision. And that's in verse 49, which says, Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. And so that phrase right there, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left, that just means uh, based on your decision, I'll know which way to go. I'll know I'll have to go this way or go that way. I'll know what I have to do next. Well, what's their answer? Well, they come back pretty quickly and say, the thing is from the Lord. And so they acknowledge that they see God's hand working and they put their trust in the servant's words. But even more than that, they put their trust in the sovereignty of God. That phrase there, uh, we cannot speak to you bad or good, at first glance, that could be a little confusing. Uh, but this is where pulling up different Bible translations can help us. In the NIV, if you have that here this morning, they, it translates it as we can say nothing to you one way or the other. And the CSB translation puts it as we have no choice in the matter. 
And then the, the Net Bible says, our wishes are of no concern. Uh, so it seems like they are saying, you know, it's obvious that the, this comes from the Lord, that the Lord is working. We may have some opinions on it, but we are not going to stand in the way. And we'll see in a moment that it does seem like they were a little reluctant for her to go so quickly. But in the end, they give way to how the Lord is working. And so as we finish this point, friends, we once again see the admirable qualities of this trusted servant. In this section, he is a faithful messenger who does not waver from his mission, but accurately communicates the task that was given to him, and he asks for a decision one way or the other. Warren Wearsby, he draws a parallel here from the message of the servant and how he communicated to how we share the message of the gospel with others. He says, the servant's job was not to argue or bribe, but simply to bear witness to the greatness of his master. He did not force Rebecca to marry Isaac. He merely gave her the facts and the opportunity to make a decision. While there's nothing wrong with urging people to be saved, we see that many times in scripture, Acts 2.40 being one, we must be careful not to try to take the place of the spirit who alone can do the work of conviction in the human heart. And he uh, quotes John 16 there as well. And John 16.8 says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And he's right. We are faithful messengers, but we leave it to the work of God in the hearts of those that we're communicating this message to. So in our next point, we see Rebecca's response. We see that she is an eager bride. Look again at verse 52 with me. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments. He gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. We'll stop right there. So with the permission given by Rebekah's family, Abraham's servant, once again, he turns like he did previously to worship. He bows to the earth out of reverence, submission, and praise to Almighty God. And then there's a bit of a celebration. More gifts are given both to Rebecca and to her family. We see silver, we see gold, we see clothes, and we see other costly items. And these would have been the choice gifts that are mentioned early, earlier in the chapter. And can I just say that as a brief rabbit trail uh, that, that this is great, I think this is really good. I love to see the honor that is given to the bride and her family. And it's not so much about the gifts themselves. Uh, Abraham was way wealthy than any of us are ever going to be, way more wealthy. Uh, but what we see is the coming together of not just two people, but of two families. And my prayer is that as the Lord allows us to be involved in helping our daughters choose faithful husbands, uh, that we too will see celebration and honor between our two families. And that's something we should all be praying for. 
And so there is a bit of a celebration. But after one night, the servant, once again, he's ready to keep going. He's ready to get on the road. And he says, send me away to my master. And it's here where we see that a little bit of resistance. Uh, but we also see Rebecca's eagerness and willingness to go. Laban and Rebecca's mother ask if she could stay another 10 days at least and then go. Uh, but the servant, in submission to Abraham, says, no, please, please let me go. And Spurgeon, he had the opinion that crafty Laban wanted them to stay longer to see how much more he could get out of them before they left. That could be very possible. Uh, I tend to think that the reality of Rebecca's leaving would be setting in, and it would be difficult to part ways, especially uh, from the perspective of uh, there's a good chance that they may not, never see her again. And so as, ser as a ser uh, the servant and as Rebecca's family, as they're on opposite sides of this decision, they call in Rebecca to see what she would like to do. And her response is simple, but definitive and certain. She says, I will go. And so we infer here that after listening to the servant's story and seeing his humble trust in the Lord, uh, along with the prosperous life that seemed to await her, that Rebecca was eager to go. And so we can commend her trust, we can commend her courage, and we can commend her willingness to go. And we may be tempted here to insert our own cultural norms when it comes to marriage and how we see couples come together today. But we have to remember that what is happening here is the common practice at the time. And it would be expected for the bride to go to a husband that she did not know, uh, often without much say at all. Uh, but the situation with Rebecca is different it's different because it's directed and orchestrated by God in a special way. But it's also different is that she was given the opportunity to reject the offer or at least to stay longer with her family. And so again, we can learn from and we can commend Rebecca for her response. And so they send her away to go start this new life. And you'll notice that they send her with two things. The first thing they send her with is a helper. And you can look at verse 59. It says that they sent her nurse along with her. And normally, these would be just a couple words that uh, we would probably read quickly and just think, oh, that's nice. They sent, they sent some help to go with her along the long journey. But the thing is, is that this nurse is curiously mentioned by name in chapter 35, verse 8. So let's turn over just briefly to chapter 35. Chapter 35, and we'll read uh, starting in verse 6, just to give us a little bit of context. It says, And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he had fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and she was buried under an oak before Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. And so this is very interesting, uh, particularly because it does seem a little random that this is mentioned, but it tells us that Rebecca's nurse was very loved 
and that she continued to serve Rebecca's family, even possibly after Rebecca herself had passed away. She continued to serve Jacob uh, and, and the rest of the family. And the name given to that place, you may have a little footnote there in your Bible, alone Bakuth, it means the oak of weeping or mourning. And so that tells us that the family was very sad at her passing. And what's even more interesting to me is that Rebecca's death is not mentioned in the Bible, but her nurse's death is. And so in these moments, we, we just know that God has revealed and decided to tell us some things and not other things. He has decided to tell us all that we need to know in his word. And here he has chosen to tell us about the death of Deborah, but not Rebecca herself. And so that shows that there is great honor given to this nurse who served the patriarchal family well. So they send a helper with her. And then the second thing is they send her with a blessing. And you can see that in verse 60. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. And so this blessing has two aspects to it. Uh, it speaks to the hope and prayer that Rebecca would have a large family that would continue on for many generations. And we know that was very true. And it also included language from the covenant that God made with Abraham. Uh, back, to, back in chapter 22, verse 17, God said to Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, the gate of those who hate you. And so that phrase that tells us and refers to the success in battle that God's people would have over those who would try and stand in the way of God's promise for a land, for his people. And so Rebecca, the servant, her nurse, and others, they set off on this long camel ride. And remember that it would take about a month for them to return. And so as we move towards our last point this morning, uh, just a quick application for us. Just as Rebecca's family sent her off with blessings, let's also make it a practice uh, to bless our own family members, to pray for them as they set off in a new venture in life, a new stage in life, or even a long journey. Let's make a practice to do that. Well, our final six verses uh, they give us the beautiful and romantic conclusion of this beautiful story as we see a loving marriage starting in verse 62. Let's read through these verses again as well. Now Isaac had returned from Be'er Lahai Ra'i and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, I said that this is romantic, and I believe it is, but I must again caution us not to have any type of Hallmark movie scene playing in your mind. 
their eyes meeting, slow motion, none of that. Uh, the error we make when we study narratives in the Bible is often twofold. Uh, first is that we insert ourselves into uh, the story, uh, making it all about us when it is clearly not about us. And then the second thing is when we read these stories through our 21st century American culture grid. And instead, when we should take some time to study the historical and cultural context of what is happening. Uh, inserting our own culture into these stories can lead to over-romanticizing the text or even criticizing and judging God in his word. Because we say, oh, why do they do it like that? We don't do it like that. That's very strange. Um, so this is romantic, but probably in a different way than you may be thinking. And verse 62 uh, tells us where Isaac has been. Be'er lahai ra'i. But he is now dwelling in the south. And do you know who also was in the same place? If you remember, back in Genesis, this is where Sarai's servant Hagar uh, fled to after she was treated harshly by Sarah in Genesis 16. And we don't know why Isaac went there originally, but we do know that he eventually lived there after his father's death in chapter 25. We'll see that next week. Uh, But at this time, the Lord sovereignly drew Isaac south, and we find him meditating in a field toward evening. And in our call to worship this morning, we read that those who love the Lord, they ponder on his works and they meditate on his mighty deeds. And also in the very first chapter of the Psalms, we read this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And last Sunday, we spent some time learning about God's steadfast love. And we saw that we must define God's love according to his word, rather than in the misused and overused way that we use the word love in our English language now. And I think we have to do the same with this word, meditate. Uh, Unfortunately, when we hear the word meditate in our culture, uh, we often think of yoga and the religion of the new age, uh, which purports itself to be about calm and peace, but in reality, it can actually open the door to demonic possession. Uh, New Age thought, it traces its roots back to Hinduism and Buddhism. And of course, we know that New Age groups, they're known uh, for their occult practices of psychic readings and tarot cards and different meditation strategies and astrology. Uh, And even though there's not really a, a standard doctrine in the New Age movement, many of their teachings focus on individual autonomy, relativism, which is, oh, it's just true for you, but not for me, uh, and spiritualism. And even worse, unfortunately, uh, there has been New Age thinking that has slowly infiltrated into the Christian world. Uh, And it's done that through popular books like Jesus Calling or The Shack, Uh, through false teachers like Richard Rohr and even personality tests like the the Enneagram. Uh, And if you want any more information about these things, uh, you can come talk to me, Pastor Pilgrim. We can give you some resources on these things. But these are just a couple examples of some things that are popular but you want to stay away from. And so 
Today, our culture traces the word meditation to include some of these things. Uh, but how does the word of God define meditate? Well, the Bible uses the term about 25 times in the Old Testament uh, and just a few in the New. And depending on the context, it means to speak, to study, to imagine, or to muse and ponder something deeply. And so simply, to meditate on God's word means to study and think deeply on his word. Uh, and I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, when Joshua was told to meditate on God's law, his meditation had a purpose. His meditation was to make him careful to do everything written in it. That's Joshua 1 verse 8. And so thinking on God's word and his character is the focus of meditation, and its goal is obedience. Focusing on the Bible and God's ways, that should lead us and will help us in our walk with the Lord. We think of verses from Psalm 119, which says, I have hidden your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. In the New Testament, Timothy is told to meditate on what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4.15. And the KJV, the old King James Version, it uses the word meditate. Uh, the ESV says practice these things. And then all believers, we're told to, in the book of Philippians, to control our thoughts. Uh, so that's the exact opposite of what New Age meditation would tell us. New Age meditation says, no, don't control your thoughts. In fact, try and get rid of all the thoughts that you have and just whatever comes into your mind, then that's what should lead you. But that's the opposite. Philippians tells us, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And so meditating on what is good and right, it has the end goal of turning our thoughts into action and putting them into practice. And so coming into contact with the Bible should promote change in a person's life. And biblical meditation is a good way to ensure that this will happen. Uh, Matthew Henry says that meditation and prayer ought to be both our business and our delight when we are alone, while we have a God, a Christ, and a heaven to acquaint ourselves with. So as long as we need to grow in our understanding of who, who God is, who Jesus is, and even focusing our thoughts on, on heaven, a meditation and prayer is a good thing to do. So when Isaac was in the field meditating, he was not sitting cross-legged like this. He wasn't doing that. He was pondering deeply some truth about the Lord or a situation in his life, possibly his mother's death, since that is mentioned in our passage. So as Isaac is in the field, he sees Rebecca coming. And she notices that they are approaching someone. And so she gets off her camel and asks, who is that man coming in the field to meet us? And according to Warren Wearsby, in that day, it was a breach of etiquette for women to ride beasts in the presence of strange men. And so that's why she respectfully got down off of her camel. And after she learns that it is indeed Isaac, she puts on her veil. And this was also a common practice at the time. Uh, women wore a veil in the presence of their fiance until the wedding day. So both the act of getting off the camel and putting on the veil show her humility, her modesty, and her submission. 
And so we see then that the servant recounts the whole story to Isaac. Then as they move forward and he takes her into his mother's tent, their marriage is completed and Isaac is finally comforted after his mother's death. And we have no insights in this passage about what exactly their marriage ceremony looked like. Uh, But from other places in the Old Testament, we know that there was usually a celebration with days of feasting. Uh, And so today as we move forward to finish this chapter, I want to point out both the type of son that Isaac was to his mother uh, and the love and the comfort that should exist in our marriages. The fact that Isaac was still mourning the death of his mother, which seems like for quite a while, uh, shows the good son that he was. And it also shows us that the loss of a loved one is not easily recovered from. It often takes a while. But on the positive side, it shows us how marriage is meant to be a help and comfort to us in life as we go through loss and grief. And so if the humility Uh, modesty, submission, and comfort that are demonstrated here by Rebecca, if they are models for Christian wives, and I believe they are, then the verb associated with Isaac is a model for Christian husbands. It says that he loved her. And this is clearly shown to us in the New Testament, in Ephesians 5 and in Colossians 3, uh, that husbands are to love their wives, not be harsh with them, and provide for their needs. Friends, we know that this account that we've spent two weeks to look at, we, we know that it's so much more than just an ancient love story. Uh, we've seen the providence of God as he divinely orchestrates these events to continue the line of the Messiah. And we've seen the instructive character qualities of Abraham, his servant, Rebecca, and Isaac. And as we closed last Sunday, we ended uh, by showing and seeing how Abraham's care in choosing a bride for Isaac is a picture of God the Father choosing a bride for his son. And all who have trusted in Christ are a part of his bride, the church, and that we await an amazing wedding feast and celebration after Christ returns. Today, we've seen just briefly the love that Isaac has for Rebecca, and so we need to ask the question and look at, man, how much more love does Jesus have for his church. In Ephesians 5, verse 25, we read this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ gave himself up He continues to do a sanctifying work in our lives in order to present us in perfect splendor and perfect holiness one day. But there's some other parallels as well. And David Guzik points out a couple of them. He says that both Rebecca and the church were chosen for marriage before they knew it. Rebecca had no idea that she was the one, but God knew and God chose her. And we know that as believers, According to Ephesians 1 verse 3, we know that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world. We know that both Rebecca and the church were necessary for the accomplishment of God's eternal purposes. In Rebecca, we see that she was 
needed to continue on this perfect line or this holy line of to the Messiah. But we as the church, we are also necessary to accomplish God's purposes in the world today. We are his instruments to proclaim the message of the gospel to the world. They were both destined to share in the glory of the Son. We see that Rebekah would share in the glory of all that Isaac had as being Abraham's heir and also in his covenant relationship with God the Father. And we too, as believers, we know that we share in the glory of the Son, that we are co-heirs with Christ. We are his inheritance. Both of them learned of the Son through his representative. For Rebecca, it was the trusted servant. For us, it may, be, may have been a family mem- member or a pastor or a friend that God used as his representative. And of course, we know the Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes. So the Holy Spirit is also Christ's representative to salvation. We saw both of them must leave all with joy to be with the Son. We saw how Rebecca joyfully and willingly left all that she had to go to a new land to be with a husband that she would learn to love and to know. And we too, when we have repented from our sins and trusted Christ, we turn from all that the world would have to offer and come to Christ. And then finally, the last one, both of them were loved and cared for by the son. Isaac loved Rebecca and Jesus loves and cares for his church. But what makes all of this even the more wonderful is that there is no beauty in us that we could boast about. We had nothing attractive to bring. We had no gifts to bring at all just our sin. And that's a big difference because Rebecca, as we said last week, Rebecca was young, she was single, and she was attractive. She was beautiful. And so there was much for Isaac to like, but not so with us. We know that Jesus died for us even while we were still sinners. And so we end today, once again, with a call, an invitation to that wedding feast And we implore you to be honest with your sin. Understand that you are lost without Christ. Repent of your sins and trust him today. And for those of us who are believers here, may we rejoice in our Savior who loved us, who died for us, and will one day present us perfectly holy as his beautiful bride. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that we are your children, that we are called as one of your own, Lord. And so we thank you for this beautiful story that happened so long ago with with real people, with Isaac and Rebecca, with Abraham, with Laban, with all of these. And yet, Lord, we thank you that even though there's much to learn from these people and how they conducted themselves, Lord, there's so much more as we consider the fact that you have chosen us as your beautiful bride, even though, Lord, we we can come to you with, with no gifts, with no silver or gold, nothing to entice you at all. No, you, by your sovereign choice, came to us, called us out of our sin, out of the muck and the miry clay, and you have set our feet upon a rock. And so, Lord, the only thing that we can give back to you is praise 
and glory. We cannot boast in ourselves, but we can boast in you, Jesus. And so we thank, thank you again for this wonderful account that we have that you've given to us, Lord, of how you brought Isaac and Rebekah together, how you keep the line of the Messiah going one day, going to the birth of your son, Jesus. Lord, may we not walk away this morning just thinking, oh, that was a nice story. But may we take these truths to heart. May you grow them in us, plant them in us, root them in us, Lord, so that we would continue to grow the fruit of the Holy Spirit and display that to those around us, to our church, and ultimately to you for your glory. It's in the wonderful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.